Section 14 of G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devorah Allen. G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. By G.K. Chesterton. On adding insult to injury. I have recently seen something of a municipal or parochial election, and observed some curious things in the cross purposes called politics. I mean the general problem of where the reformers are wrong even when they are right, and where the populace are right even when they are wrong. A man I know was a candidate in a country town. His philosophy is too Fabian for my taste but he is a man of very honorable sincerity and public spirit, and many things he would have reformed badly wanted reforming. And the odd thing is this, that his unexpected defeat was attributed to his unpopular action in calling the poorer cottage property a slum. This was so much resented that there were rumors of violence and ducking in ponds and so on. I do not believe anybody dreamed of so dirty and disgraceful an action— but the very idea seemed to suggest to me a certain truth. If a reformer were ducked in a pond, he might not wish his friends to dwell on his dingy and dismal appearance when fished out of the pond. Well, the poor have been plunged forcibly into filth by the plutocratic progress. But we may well be careful in what words we call them filthy. In other words, we must be careful that all modern reform is not the literal fulfillment of a proverb adding insult to injury. After all, in this, as in so many things, we have only to shift the social levels to see the truth. Suppose a grave, grey-haired, well-groomed gentleman of the governing class, coming out of Parliament or a Pall Mall club, has his hat smashed over his nose, is kicked into the gutter and rolled in the mud, and so on. We may rightly feel that the old gentleman has been abominably treated." but we shall be lacking in psychological tact and sympathy if we keep on saying in a loud voice, "'Consider the outrage upon his dignity. Think how absurd he must have looked sitting down suddenly in a puddle. Picture to yourself the pathetic expression of disconcerted surprise upon his venerable features. Calculate, for one moment in your mind, the exact angle at which the hat, a dissipated concertina, must have been tilted over one eye.' Consider the laughter to which our friend was exposed among the vast crowds, including so many ladies and gentlemen whose opinion he especially valued. Realize how hearty, how happy, how prolonged that laughter must have been, how long the legend of this incident will linger, and then ask yourselves whether an atrocity more abominable, and so on. Anybody who defended the old gentleman so eloquently as that might be surprised to find he was rather more huffy about being defended than about being attacked. Or suppose the case of a young wife, who has been given a black eye. For it is a first principle of social reform that every husband having less than a certain income gives his wife a black eye. You may be chivalrous in your concern for the young lady, but if you dilate with too much enthusiasm upon the hideousness and repulsiveness of the eye, you may find that your chivalry is not appreciated. 
she may not altogether desire to have it triumphantly proved that she is now the most loathsome and revolting spectacle in Clapham. Doubtless she resents being made ugly, but she also resents being made out uglier than she is. Now that is what remains of the idea of personal dignity, which is the soul of property. And that is what poor people feel when they resent having their cottages called slums. The old gentleman whose hat is smashed feels that after all it is his hat. He dislikes it being destroyed, but he also dislikes it being derided. He even dislikes its destruction being derided. The young lady who has her eye blackened feels that, after all, it is her eye. She does not want it plugged by the fist of violence, but neither does she want it pointed at by the finger of scorn. So it is true to say that the home also has been blackened by industrial grime and intolerable grievances. It is often true to say that the house has been smashed like the hat. But still, the man does feel, in some dim way, that it is his house, or is supposed to be his house, or ought to be his house, and that to insult it is in some way to insult him. And that feeling works back, as so much else works back, to the true tradition of property. And he distrusts the progressives, because they are not working back to that, but working forward to something quite contrary. Both reactionaries and revolutionaries commonly complain of the ingratitude of the poor. It is possible to sympathize with them in the sense of knowing what they mean. It is also possible to push sympathy to the fantastic length of knowing what the poor mean. The revolutionary, as a rule, has even more reason to complain than the reactionary. The poor certainly complain of him even more than of the reactionary. To begin with, the situation cannot be understood until we realize that most of the populace, especially the rural populace, regard both as types of the same social class, and one quite separate from their own social class. They are both representatives of gentry, and just as a loose squire is still a squire, so a liberal scholar is still a scholar. It might be roughly represented by the attitude of a poor landlady towards two lodgers. The conservative is only a self-indulgent lodger. The socialist is only a fussy lodger. One is a peppery major who demands curries. The other is a priggish vegetarian who demands lentils. But these two things are not seen primarily as the extremes of two opinions, but as the eccentricities of one class. In this sense, the poor are as class-conscious as any Marxian professor can wish them to be they are quite sufficiently conscious of their own class to know that the Marxian professor always belongs to another class. But there is another idea in this ingratitude attributed to the working classes. It is as much an instinct as an idea, and it is true, though the psychoanalysts do say so, that what is subconscious often expresses itself in symbols. A cottage woman in my neighborhood actually complained that her new cottage was provided with a tap over the sink. The only actual expression that could be got out of her was something like, I've always had to go out for my water. To many, this may well sound like the most wild and whimsical sort of thanklessness and discontent. It is as if she had cursed her stars because the river ran by her own door and did not give her the healthy exercise of walking a mile to the parish pump. It is as if she blasphemed the gods because the apples grew on the lowest branch within her reach, 
because they did not give the old lady the joyous and juvenile adventure of climbing to the top of the tree. But for anyone who understands something of the tangle of traditions involved, it is not altogether like that. It is not a complaint of the water flowing where it chooses, but of it being diverted to a place which she did not choose. And it is not a memory of walking to the parish pump, but of walking to the private well. Anyone who knows anything of the real history of England, largely hidden by the best English historians, knows that this cottage woman's great-grandmother, or even her grandmother, may quite well have been the wife of a yeoman, owning his own freehold and drinking from his own well. That is, on the rare occasions when he had not something better to drink, for he, or his yet more superstitious ancestors, could get a gallon of ale for a few pence. Now every step of the process, from the conditions when he could get ale so cheaply, to the condition in which he is almost forbidden to get it at all, has been represented as a step of progress, of what Cobbett called vast improvements. The squires who enclosed commons, the merchants who cut down wages, the organizers of machinery and the preachers of utilitarianism, all claimed that logic and enlightenment were entirely on their side. If, therefore, the status of the yeoman had lingered as late as the woman's grandmother, it could only be by the sort of tradition that is called prejudice. It could only be by a tough conservative instinct, the poor man clinging almost blindly to custom. In short, freedom could only survive by his repeating, with an almost brutal and brainless obstinacy, I've always had to go out for my water. He had nothing else to say. But what success he had came from saying it. He had never read the encyclical of Leo XIII, or Mr. Belloc on the servile state. He did not even take in the new witness. He is now called merely ignorant, and indeed he had the deepest and darkest sort of ignorance. He did not even know that he was right. But suppose that when he could easily get a gallon of ale in the market, or even brew a gallon of ale in the house, somebody proposed that the ale should be laid on to his house like water, with pipes and taps. That would seem to some a glorious, and to others a bestial freedom. But in practice it would have worked out as the reverse of free. As the fad of temperance grew more and more intemperate, the same system that allowed of unlimited supply would have allowed of unlimited limitation. Great official corporations, commanding beer like water, could much more easily have cut down the drinking hours and diluted the drink. They could have done it without any fuss of parliamentarism or even of police. They could have done it not even with a stroke of the pen, but rather with a turn of the tap. And if ever science advances so far as to find alcohol in water, as well as animalculae in water, or any other peril or need of precaution, that precaution would really be prohibition. That is what the poor woman obscurely felt about the terrors of the tap. She had the instinct that when everything can be laid on, everything can be cut off. When, as in some socialist vision, nothing is bought or owned, but everything is supplied, the supply can cease suddenly. We are only safe at present because the powers do not happen to object to washing or water drinking. But if ink were laid on in pipes like water, from some great collectivist ink works as large as the waterworks, 
we might soon discover that the powers may happen to object to writing. They might well object to what I am now writing, and still more to somebody who should write it better. I should be lucky to have an inkwell of my own. End of section 14